This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. Today, disorder. It may have escaped your notice, but everything is all over the place everywhere. Chaos, disruption, and unpredictability are the hallmarks of our times. At the beginning of a new decade, Western democratic societies face overlapping geopolitical, economic, and political crises. But where do these crises come from? Joining me to explain this is Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge and co-host of the Talking Politics podcast. Her new book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, seeks to explain the historical origins of the political shocks of the past decade, showing how fault lines in Western democracies, the Sino-American relationship, NATO and the European Union have been decades in the making. Helen was also, incidentally, my Director of Studies at university, so the last time we were engaged in an interview, I was an extremely nervous 17-year-old, and I have now improved and am simply an extremely nervous 31-year-old. Hello, Helen. Hello, Ahi. Pleasure to be here. Well, Helen, first things first, given that so much of the way that I think about things and the world is due to your influence, would you say that any bad questions are your fault? You can say, okay, yeah, I will take that one. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I feel much safer now. So, Helen, let's start at the beginning. What sort of drove you to write on this subject when you started? And I know that you started before the whole COVID crisis. So what have the developments of the last two years done to both the book and your thinking? I think I really started thinking about writing this book in um, sometime in like 2017. But it was really quite a, a blur in my mind. Then I certainly didn't have an argument to pursue, just a sense that the shocks that happened in 2016, obviously, primarily Brexit and Trump, but actually the attempted coup in Turkey was an important part of my thinking about what happened in 2016. I found quite a lot of the commentary, particularly on Brexit and Trump, quite superficial. And I thought there was a bigger picture story that was being missed. So I first of all started sitting down and writing an essay for myself, really. And I started, I think, in the, I did start in the summer of 2018, trying to explain it to myself. That essay actually was a bit more ambitious than the book turned out to be because there was a fourth dimension um, to it. And I soon realised that actually this wasn't really going to work. It just made the book even more complicated than it already was. And there wasn't really a way of connecting a, a cultural story to the kinds of geopolitical and economic and political changes that I most directly wanted to engage with. So if we skip on then to the pandemic times, I mean, I wasn't actually as far ahead as I should have been by six months into the year of academic leave that I had. And I had a a few weeks of thinking, what on earth am I going to do? Because if my book's supposed to be explaining the present political moment and the present political moment has just changed out of all recognition. But then things started to happen, including the financial crisis at the beginning of the pandemic, decision of the German Constitutional Court. And I started to think that actually 
that what the, the pandemic was doing was putting more pressure on the fault lines that I'd been thinking about. So then I set about trying to work out how I could incorporate what was happening in real time into the more historical story that I wanted to tell. It was the fact that you were about, uh, you were slightly behind six months into the year of academic leave. We can say that this book has been made relevant through procrastination. And that is something that I hope that you are passing on to your students. <laughs> yeah, I didn't procrastinate that much, actually. I So over the course of the book, you sort of split things into sections talking about sort of energy and then money and finance and finally politics and the future of democratic politics. So I thought we'd sort of take those in order. I understand from your previous answer that the fourth dimension of this was going to be a more sociocultural one. And reading the book, I suppose one could say, is this a slightly materialist way of seeing the world? And why did you choose to remove that cultural point? How do you see the interplay of those things? The thing is, I am. I do think that I'm basically offering a fairly materialist interpretation of what has gone on at the centre of the disruption over the last decade, though I would say that I think there's less emphasis on material explanations in the democracy chapter, and I that quite deliberately, because I don't think materialist explanations are sufficient. I think the difficulty of trying to pursue the ideas that I had about culture were firstly that I hadn't thought about them as seriously and systematically as I think that I had the other parts. But what I wanted to do by the end of the book was be able to explain how the three stories as I was presenting them came together to be one big story. And that's really the point of the conclusion of the book. And that involved working out how the different disruptions interconnected with each other. And I think that's where trying to weave culture into the same story. I'm not saying it would have been impossible, but it was beyond what my intellectual imagination was capable of working out how to achieve. The beginning of the book starts extensively discussing sort of oil and gas and how that affected Eurasian powers and the United States and increasingly China towards the end of the 20th century. Do you think of the 20th century as largely being a story of oil and sort of what is that story? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a really, actually, this is a really tough question I hear because I, I certainly think that there is a way of telling the big picture story of the, the 20th century through oil. And I certainly think that there's a way, an important way of telling Europe's history through the fact that there scarcely was any oil in Europe at the time in which the age of oil began. If we just move on to into the 21st century and the last 10 years, I don't think we can understand much about what's gone on geopolitically unless we understand that the United States returned to being a, a large-scale energy producer with shale oil and gas boom. So I, I certainly think that oil is crucial. If you're not seeing what's going on with oil, you're missing something quite central, I think, to 20th century and early 21st century history. On the other hand, if you just focus on oil, you can start to think that there's an age of coal, that there's an age of oil, and now we're about to enter the age of green energy. And I think that that narrative is quite distorting and, and quite problematic because through the entire time of the age of oil, except for a little, little bit perhaps in the, in the 2010s, coal consumption has carried on increasing throughout the world. So oil didn't come along and change the world in energy terms by replacing what had gone before. It became an addition to what had gone before. And I think that's quite important for understanding like what will happen, what is likely to happen with the transition or the revolution. I more prefer to think about it in terms of green energy as we attempt to uh, achieve it because we're not going to leave the age of oil and gas behind. It's going. This is going to be an addition for quite some time rather than a replacement. 
Right, okay, because my hope was very much that, all right, yes, this all sounds very bad and lots of bad things have happened in what I was conceiving of as the age of oil, but let's just stick solar panels on everything, put wind turbines all over the place and build a few nuclear power stations and maybe it'll all be fine. But you're saying that sort of oil will continue to maintain its sort of prevalence. We can look at this in two different ways, I think. First of all, we can say that if we just take the, you know, the pandemic, that there was a fall of maybe about 7 million barrels a day in the amount of oil that's consumed in the world in 2020. But already by the end of 2021, the world was back to consuming more oil than it had done before the pandemic uh, and you know, significantly more than it was doing at the time of the 2007 and 8 crash. So we haven't seen anything in terms of an energy transition yet that has made a significant dent on what is still an upward trajectory of oil consumption at the world level. I think the other question is as well, even if it's the case that there's a relatively rapid transition away from oil, about which I'm sceptical, is it still going to be the case, even I mean, even the very idea of net zero presupposes this, that oil is still going to have a place in the world's energy supply? And so long as oil has a place in the world's energy supply, then the geopolitics of oil come with it. Now, they may look quite different than they did either in the 20th century or what they've done for the last 10 years but it can't go away because you just simply cannot have oil-based energy without bringing the, the geopolitics of where it's produced, where it's located and how it is then transported and who provides energy security around that. You just can't take that away. In the historical sweep of your book, we sort of start in a place with Europe and the Soviet Union and the United States with the latter two being large oil and gas producers sort of tussling. But what what comes through increasingly as we move through the 20th century is the sort of inexorable rise of China. And you speak particularly about how China, through pursuing export-led growth, led to an increased period of non-inflationary growth in the West, and that the two sort of relied on one another extremely deeply. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that and perhaps what that might mean in a world of decelerating Chinese growth. I think there's a lot of complicated things going on here. I mean, the first thing to say is is that China's economic development went hand in hand with a very rapid increase in energy consumption, actually more significantly, ultimately, in relation to coal than in relation to oil. But the significant difference being between Chinese oil consumption and Chinese coal consumption, you could put gas on the oil side of this, that at a certain point after 1993 is is that China started to import oil from the rest of the world. It's not that China doesn't have any oil, but it certainly doesn't have oil in relation to the amount that it started to consume. And that that between really starting, I would say, from 2004, certainly decisively so by 2004, all the way through to the middle of 2008, when oil prices reached a peak and then crashed, had a very significant effect um, on the on the world economy, made oil prices in historical terms much higher than they'd ever been before, even compared to the two oil price shocks of the 1970s. And that caused a great deal of concern for Western central banks, for the American Fed, for the Bank of England, for the, the European Central Bank. But it didn't produce as much general inflation as the central bankers worried about at various times. And part of the reason for that was because the nature of China's economic growth was doing simultaneously was adding acting as an anti-inflationary pressure in Western economies through cheap exports in various sectors. But I think that what we can see is a growing consensus, 
particularly amongst the European central bankers, by the time we get to the crash of 2008, that there's a problem here and that the problem as they saw it, I don't think they were entirely right about this, but that what the problem as they saw it was is that China's rising oil consumption was bringing the world of non-inflationary economic growth in Western economies that had kind of prevailed, you can either argue from like the late 80s or from some point in the, in, in the 90s through to the middle of the 2000s that was bringing that to an end. Now, I think the the crash itself, the monetary fallout of that, the fact that the Federal Reserve went down the road so quickly of quantitative easing and zero interest rates, it made possible an escape from those fears that those central bankers had. It made possible the financial conditions for the United States to return as the top oil and gas producer. But that then had its own disruptive consequences because a world in which the United States was the world's top energy producer was one in which it was no longer the case that there was just a duo, if you like, at the top of Saudi Arabia and Russia. And that had consequences for the the US-Saudi relationship. It had consequences for the relationship between the United States and Europe over energy, particularly over gas. And we're still living in the fallout of that world now. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. In terms of the financial crisis, you write that the immediate framing of the financial crisis around American subprime borrowing, post-1980s financial sector deregulation, and East Asian central banks was always misleading. Now, this was a passage in your book that deeply frustrated me because I thought that having watched The Big Short twice, I basically had a handle on what was going on, and you uh, clearly proved me wrong. So, yes, would would you be able to talk about, in that sense, what if the financial crisis wasn't about that, and maybe then if we think it's about that, we end up learning the wrong lessons from it or taking the wrong lessons from it. What, to your mind, was the financial crisis and what are the lessons that can be taken from it? Well, I think at the at the heart of the financial crisis is a banking crisis. Now, I think that there are other bits of the story that have got to be understood, and some of that does actually need to be understood about the relationship between the US mortgage market and Chinese and Japanese central banks and the flow of capital effectively across the Pacific and the role that mortgage-backed securities played in that. It, it's not that that's not part of the story. The question is, is I think, is better thought of as like, where is the epicentre of what's going on in 2007, 2008? And I think I mean, there's plenty of other people than me who think this, is, is that there's a, I think that there's been a growing awareness uh, since the time itself that what was missed at the time was the place of the European banks in the in the financial crisis. 
and the amount of dollar lending and borrowing that they engaged in. And it is really out of that that in some sense, well, I'm not saying it's the most significant thing that's happened out of the financial crisis, but it's one of the most significant things that's happened, is, is that the Federal Reserve Board has had effectively to become a lender of last resort in these dollar markets in which in which banks functioned. And I think what we can learn from that then, or what, sorry, not what we can learn immediately, but what we can see from that is actually that European banking is now much less important in the world economy than it was prior to the, the crash. And in some sense, European banks, and I'm saying this when I say European here, including British banks, they in some sense haven't really recovered, I think, from what's happened then. And I think that this makes the lessons that can be learned about it quite difficult because obviously the immediate sort of focus on the lessons that can be drawn were about like domestic financial regulation, both in Europe, European countries at the European Union level and in the United States. But once you see this as an international banking problem, and once you see essentially that the only way out of it was what the Federal Reserve did, then it becomes something on a very different scale that's much harder to address. And what we can see by the time we get to the pandemic financial crisis in March 2020 is it's pretty much the same things play out again, just this time compressed into a much shorter time frame. And again, the whole thing depends on the Federal Reserve Board being able to act as that lender of last resort. I should say international lender of last resort. And then in terms of the position of Europe, that I, I thought that it was incredibly interesting that this was a continent that simply is so hungry for the resources that powered the sort of 20th and 21st century, despite not sort of domestically possessing many of the those resources themselves, obviously, with the exception of North Sea and stuff in the Scandi countries and whatnot. So often it seems that there's been a case where Europe was locked in the middle of conflicts between first the Soviet Union and the United States and Russia and the United States. And we're seeing that play out even now when the UK is sending anti-tank weapons to Ukraine and not being able to fly over German airspace on account of Nord Stream 2 still being in the works. So where do you think Europe sits now at this sort of position in this the world of interlocking energy and economic and political crises? I mean, I think it, it Europe's in a really difficult position and as I say, again, I mean the, the European Union, not the European Union, I mean Europe as a as a continent. I think if you go back, and I, I don't think I you know, really saw this quite clearly until I was actually writing, there is a sense, I think, in which Europe's place in the world, which, and obviously the 19th century had been you know, the century of European empires, the zenith of European influence in, in the world and in Eurasia in particular, is, is that if we think about this in energy terms, the energy basis of that was coal. And that's particularly obviously true for Britain, but it was also true by the end of the, the 19th century and the early years of the 20th century for Germany. So the European empires didn't require a energy resource extraction. But what I'm saying here is, is that the energy source of it was coal, and both Britain and Germany, if you just take it, had abundant supplies of, of, of coal. The world that is moving to adding oil into this mix is a very different world. And although oil in European countries doesn't become sort of bound up with everyday life anywhere near as quickly as it does in the um, United States, it matters pretty quickly in the beginning of the 20th century for military power and particularly for naval power and 
the prospect of an oil-based American Navy at the same time as America's got engaged in this like really rapid economic development towards the end of the 19th century uh, as it's become a, a continental state stretching now from the Atlantic to the Pacific, it, it puts deep dread, I think, into many leaders in, in Europe and in some sense to the whole political class in European countries and that they have then to work out what they can do about finding sources of oil for themselves. And the British and the French in the end are the most successful at this, and that becomes a basis for another different kind of empire, British and the French empires in the Middle East. And the point of it all is to try to avoid a dependency upon the United States, and at the same time to not confine themselves as they see it to being left behind. And these empires, as we know, are not sustainable, though Britain hangs on in there militarily in the Middle East until the end of the 1960s. Now, once it is not possible, and the principal alternative is to turn towards the then Soviet Union, something that Britain does less so, because by the time this is really the issue, then also oil gas production are, are taking off. But there we have the beginnings of the story about Germany's oil and gas dependency and most consequentially gas dependency upon Russia. Because if the the two main sources of oil and gas in the Eurasian world become Russia and the Middle East, and the Middle East becomes pretty problematic for various reasons, then the alternative is Russia. And we're living in a world that was shaped by that growing energy relationship between Germany and the Soviet Union. So... We've spoken a lot about various fossil fuels and everything and the impact that they've had on the political history of the 20th and 21st centuries and our current crisis. But obviously, a huge part of our crises going forward are going to center around climate change. And the largest emitter now is China. Do you feel as though we're in a situation where climate change may prove to be sort of the insoluble problem of democratic politics? Yeah, I mean, I think that Yes, possibly, quite possibly. I mean, I think it's also a pretty difficult geopolitical problem because what we can see, I think, happening over the last, particularly over the last decade, but I would actually argue that you can see the roots of this going back before the last decade, is that there's a, a fundamental geopolitical tension between the United States and China. I think it's too simplistic to say China's a straightforward rising power and the United States is a straightforward declining power because in some important respects, not least energy and finance, America, the United States has more power now than it did a decade ago. But there's clearly a fear in in Washington that as the energy basis of modern societies change, that the winner of it in geopolitical terms is going to be China. That is partly a function of how much manufacturing goes on in China, China's domination of those markets, but it's also about um, China's domination of metal production. And so I think that that's a a very genuine political fear in Washington that the green energy age might be China's age. And in the same way in which the United States benefited from oil becoming the world's most significant energy source, that China will benefit from green energy becoming ever more significant. Now that's playing out though at the same time where China is the biggest carbon emitter and the incentive for cooperation over climate change with China is you know, enormous. And these things are pulling pretty clearly in, in opposite directions. I think what we can see is, is that the Biden administration when it came in John Kerry had this idea that you could kind of like compartmentalise climate change off and say, look, we've just got to cooperate about this and everything else can't get in the way of that. 
But I think that was quite naive, not least because the very nature of the green energy transition itself induces geopolitical conflict. Uh, and it hasn't particularly been very, it hasn't been um, very successful. There hasn't been a significant improvement um, in US-China relations under the Biden presidency than there was under the four years of Trump. So I think this tension is just something that's just here. It's going to shape geopolitics. That is going to rebound back into democratic politics, particularly in the in the United States. And then there's a separate set of questions, I think, about how democracies, Western democracies, can deal with the fallout of the energy transition and particularly deal with the assumption that is sort of there in the zero net zero um, narrative that all this can be done relatively painlessly as a growth strategy, as a way of generating um, jobs, as a way of renewing um, Western manufacturing sectors. When that turns out to be true and the the problems that the energy transition will bring come to the fore, not least the fact that the the technology uh, at the moment simply doesn't exist to turn solar and wind into non-intermittent sources of energy, that is going to put enormous pressure, I think, because in some sense, most citizens are not prepared for what the energy revolution means. They've been brought to about it in ways, I think, that in some sense are misleading. And I think it's got quite a bit of the potential for causing the kinds of backlash that Trump was able to exploit in the United States in terms of the US-China economic relationship in the 1990s and the first parts of the 2000s. So finally, I feel like when one writes a book called Disorder and talks about crises like at, at a particular point in time, you know, I'm, I'm always reminded of that uh old is it gravity quote of the old being dead the new not being born and in the interregnum many morbid symptoms will appear and i always think that do people always feel as though they're living in the morbid symptoms has there ever been a point in time where people haven't felt that way so is there something that you feel is particularly unique about these sort of particular confluence of crises that and disorders that we're living through now that are particularly relevant to be thinking about I think the fundamental thing issue here goes back to goes back to energy, uh, and I think that that is for a twofold um, reason. The first of them is is that we're living through the playing out of the consequences um, of the the pressure the the conjunction of rising Asian oil demand, obviously good part China, but not only China and problems with supply in most oil producing or in many at least oil producing countries in the mid in, in the middle of um the the 2000s means that um the material energy basis of the world as we know it and we've known it i would say certainly since in the uh, since the um since the second world um war is under enormous um pressure it doesn't mean that there can't be ways of dealing with that that that, that, that there aren't short-term remedies if you like that or short-term things that moves that alleviate the 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 immediate um difficulties um but it's a quite serious problem and i'd say that there's a significant difference here between now and the 1970s in this respect in the 1970s the energy problems at their heart were geopolitical 
they weren't actually about the relationship between supply and demand. They were about the end of the the European, or particularly the British imperial um, rule in the in the Middle East, the diminishment of the Western oil majors, uh, and the end of the United States position as the world's largest um, oil um, producer. We're living in a world where the relationship between supply and demand is much more complicated, I think. And simultaneously as that's happening, is we're living in the world of the climate crisis and the need to move away as rapidly as possible, however difficult it is, from fossil fuel energies, or at least to decisively to change the balance in favour of green energy over fossil fuel um, energy. Uh, and if the energy revolution were to succeed, certainly in the timescales that have been talked about in relation to net zero by 2050, it would just be like, a, I mean, it would just it would just be phenomenal moment in human history to do that that quickly. Um, so in, in this sense, I think that the word crisis doesn't even begin to get <laughs> to the, 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 the actual moment that we're um, living thing. It's just, I just think it's actually an extraordinary historical moment. Crisisunity? Maybe it's a crisisunity. Professor Thompson, thank you very much. Helen Thompson's book, Disorder, Hard Times in the 21st Century, is available from the 24th of February from Oxford University Press. Helen, that was uh, very impressive. And pending your A-level results, you get a, you get a provisional offer. Thank you very much out here. I think you got an unconditional offer, though. Ellen, thank you very much for joining me. And listeners, thank you for joining us on The Bunker Daily. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favourite podcast app and you can get every edition of The Bunker early, plus merchandise and more when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ahu Shah. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich and Jacob Archibald. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. Theme tuned by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Oh,